Welcome to Clause 8. Today, we're lucky to be joined by former Chief Judge of the Federal Circuit, Judge Paul Michel, who has become known for his dogged efforts to help America's patent system. Thank you for joining us today. Eli, I'm happy to be here. So I, I want to really start by asking you, most people, they can't wait to retire and just relax. And after 44 years of public service, including 22 years on the Federal Circuit, he decided to embark on one of the biggest challenges in D.C., and that's trying to improve America's patent system. What do you think about you that really motivated you to do that? Well, need. I saw a need for somebody to be able to speak out about the system overall from the standpoint of uh, the public good, not just from the standpoint of one company's profit, bottom line. Uh, as a sitting judge, I was very restricted in what I could say on matters that were political, controversial, involved major public policy. By retiring, I was able to regain my First Amendment rights and speak freely about those matters. So I decided to do that. 2010 and 2011, one of the first things that you did is you co-wrote, a, I guess, a series of op-eds really arguing that the key to, Amer to meaningful job growth in America is fixing America's patent system. We'll talk about the specifics later, but um, overall, looking back at the last six or seven years till the end of the Obama administration, how do you think the America's patent system is doing? I think it's doing badly. I think it's uh, highly distressed, uh, has been substantially weakened, uh, and needs uh, serious uh, repair and revival and strengthening, uh, not only so it can do its job, but so that we can remain competitive with other countries. Uh, while we've been weakening our patent system in many ways in recent years, China and other countries have been greatly upgrading their patent systems. And patent enforcement in countries like Germany is much faster, much stronger, much cheaper, much less disruptive, and much more certain. So uh, investment uh, is shrinking here, and it's growing elsewhere because the investors follow the incentives. If it's too hard to get patents or defend patents or enforce patents, uh, people who control money will invested in something other than research and development and the follow-on commercialization. So I think the stakes are very high. Uh, there's a great deal of uh, evidence in multiple studies by both private and public uh, economists uh, indicating that most net new jobs are created by new small technology-based companies. Those companies tend, in most cases, to be highly dependent on patents to get the investment they need to, to grow and succeed. Uh, so they create nearly all net new jobs, and they're the very companies that suffer the most from weak patents. I saw, coincidentally, the person who co-wrote those op-eds with you uh, in 2010, he was publishing a book called Great Again, as in Make America Great Again, which uh, prophetically almost became the President Trump's campaign slogan, and also his, uh, the name of one of his campaign books. Um, there has been a lot of talks about the lack of meaningful economic growth and the political implications of that. Uh, I guess, how do you look back at that? And is, is, this, is this what you were concerned with when you were um, doing that rallying call? To well, short, shortly after I retired from the court in May of 2010, uh, I met Henry Hank Nothaft, the president then of Tessera, uh, 
technology company in the electronic sector in California. Uh, and he was finishing a book. Uh, we became friends uh, because he was frequently coming to Washington to talk, to talk to members of Congress about the need to strengthen patents, not weaken them, as the debates uh, that led to the America Invents Act uh, wended their way year after year. I came to admire him greatly. He was uh, a highly successful serial CEO of numerous startup companies. Uh, he had previously been a, Marine Corps, a career Marine Corps officer. He's a wonderful guy, very patriotic, very energetic, very dedicated. He spent endless days in Washington talking to congressmen, and he was very disappointed that he didn't get a, a more responsive hearing. So we became friends and allies. Uh, we co-authored an article uh, that appeared in the New York Times in August of uh, 2010. As you say, his book was titled um, Great Again, uh, uh, presaging the Trump slogan. Um, he, he finally, uh, uh, seeing the America Events Act and ways in which it weakened instead of strengthened the patent system as he had advocated, he finally... Uh, uh, retired from the field of public advocacy, wow. very disappointed, uh, and he went on to uh, other pursuits uh, because he felt that Congress just wasn't well informed, wasn't paying attention, didn't uh, uh, see the harm that they were uh, unintentionally causing, particularly to smaller companies, by weakening patents and their enforcement. So he left very disappointed and uh, I have tried to stay in the field, uh, but it's very hard to get a full hearing. Uh, I've only been called to testify once in wow. all the years of patent reform uh, hearings on Capitol Hill and all the different committees and in both the House and the Senate. Uh, and I was called uh, in March of 2011 by the minority party uh, where the, the uh, AIA was already... Uh, fairly near the end of its uh, uh, preparation. Uh, and I was there to sound a note of caution of, you know, don't kill the startups. Don't uh, uh, weaken patents so much that uh, the investment the country needs in research and development uh, will, will uh, be diminished instead of increased at a time we need it to, uh, to grow. Um, and um, it was very interesting. Uh, I tried to say to the... Uh, subcommittee uh, on the courts and the House Judiciary Committee uh, that they should listen to my caution and my warning because I, I was objective. I had no axe to grind. I had no bottom line to defend. The other two witnesses who testified at the same hearing represented two different large coalitions, and they were both very smart, very able, very articulate people, uh, and the coalitions they represented were important, uh, one man represented the big tech California companies uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, and the other represented a broader coalition of, uh, of companies. Uh, but they each had a, you know, a, a reason to say what they said, and, and I was trying to convince the committee, uh, chaired by uh, Representative Goodlatte, that uh, I had something to say and my impression was that rather than thinking they should pay attention to what I was saying because 
I was objective that the fact that I did that I didn't represent any coalition of wealthy corporations made me easy to ignore. So that was a little bit disappointing, but uh, I decided to try to stay in the field uh, even after my friend Hank not have felt that it was futile and 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 he retired from the field. Uh, and, and we'll get more to AI later on what happened with that. That's very interesting. Um, and I know you're involved with the IPO Education Foundation, um, and, but there's recently been news that you've helped to establish the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding. Can you tell us more about that and what's going on with that and uh, really what's the goal of that organization? Well, the real founder of that organization is a very able, knowledgeable man named Bruce Berman, who's part of the Berman Brody uh, investment company in New York City. Uh, and he uh, uh, contacted me and we had many, many conversations in which I encouraged him to go ahead with his plans and we discussed the strategies and direction and timing and mechanics and other aspects of starting such an educational effort. Uh, and uh, I gave him all the encouragement and advice that I could uh, he asked me if I would want to serve on the board, and I said no. I was already on the IPO Education Foundation board and involved in other projects, and that I didn't want to be part of the governance, but I encouraged him strongly to go ahead with his plans, as did former PTO director David Kapos. Uh, so uh, I, I'm a cheerleader and an encourager and an advisor on an informal basis, but I'm not part of the ongoing uh, leadership or uh, board of directors of that organization. I also have been involved with the George Mason University Law School uh, Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property, again as a sort of informal advisor, not involved in their uh, governance, but again advising and encouraging and cooperating. Um, uh, I'm more concerned with focusing on Capitol Hill and the media because uh, the pressure for more rounds of patent reform has not gone away. Uh, it may even be increasing. Uh, the uh, Berman project is focused much more on the long term in the general okay. public, and to an extent so is the IPO Education Foundation Board. And my main focus is on the Congress, uh, the staffers, the members, people in the White House and the Patent Office who have the, the strong hands in shaping patent policy going forward. Um, so I'm concentrating on sort of the inside the Washington Beltway uh, operators, not the general public uh, around the country. Bruce Berman and his allies are, have that broader focus on educating the public in general. Okay. I really wanted to talk a little bit about your background. It's, uh, like I said, 44 years in public service, and you have had a lot of interesting positions. Um, you started your legal career in the Philadelphia DA's office, and I, I think I read somewhere that at one point you were investigating the mayor, the police chief, the governor, and half the city council. Um, I was just wondering, how did that work shape you, and particularly your view of people in positions of power? Well, I grew up uh, near Philadelphia in a town called Wayne, and was always very interested in government and politics and law and courts, uh, and particularly focused uh, uh, in Philadelphia. So when I finished law school in 1966, I went to the University of Virginia. Uh, I decided to go back to Philadelphia to work for then newly elected district attorney Arlen Specter. 
Uh, and uh, I did that and I stayed there and worked with him for seven years. Uh, it was a great education. Uh, I did all kinds of work, trial work, uh, motions work, appeals work, uh, investigating uh, some frauds, investigating some environmental uh, problems and many other things. It was a great education, a great job. And in the latter part of it, I began to specialize more and more in investigating uh, allegations of corruption among public officials and politicians. Um, and uh, the last two years I was in charge of an investigative grand jury that was called to pursue those kind of uh, matters. Uh, and when Senator Specter left office after two four-year terms, uh, I also left the DA's office in Philadelphia, and because of that specialization, I was hired by Leon Jaworski uh, uh, in the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Office, so that's what brought me to Washington. I've been here uh, ever since. I've actually been a lawyer for a little over 50 years now. Uh, I went to my uh, University of Virginia 50th uh, Law School reunion last May. Um, and uh, I've had a very unusual career because in 50 years of lawyering, I've never spent even one day in a law firm. That's, that's a kind of a rare uh, bird, I think. And um, uh, I've had seven or eight main jobs, uh, each of which lasted for multiple years, some uh, quite lengthy, seven years here, seven years there, and so on, uh, and then 22 years on the court. Uh, so my career was sort of... Uh, uh, a series of uh, public service, high intensity, high publicity, uh, uh, high interest uh, projects, uh, one after another. And I was very lucky to be able to move from the DA's office in Philadelphia to the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Office, from there to the Senate Intelligence Committee, from there to the new Public Integrity Section in the Justice Department, then back to the Senate uh, as uh, one of the senior aides to Senator Specter uh, in the early and mid-80s, and then from there to the court, uh, where I ended up uh, until I retired in 2010. So uh, there was actually uh, more continuity than you might think. You say, well, what does uh, investigating public corruption have to do with patent law? But what I learned in uh, the work in the DA's office in Philadelphia and the later investigative assignments uh, was how to uh, unearth and collect and uh, correlate and analyze complex information about uh, many things, uh, particularly things that had a financial uh, dimension. So looking back on it, I think actually the various jobs I had before going on the court were very good preparation for being on the court that focused so much on intellectual property law and rights and their enforcement. Um, and the job in the Senate, uh, both jobs in the Senate, uh, like the investigative and prosecutorial jobs, were actually quite good uh, preparation because as a Senate aide, uh, I would be besieged, uh, as was Senator Specter, by lobbyists and lawyers and public relations people for innumerable viewpoints on every one of the thousands of issues before the Senate. So I had a lot of practice in listening and discerning and assessing credibility and spotting conflicts between one viewpoint and another uh, and making reasoned judgments uh, after hearing many, many different uh, uh, advocacies by different people with different viewpoints. And it 
actually, uh, in hindsight, was quite good preparation to be a court of appeals judge. Definitely. Uh, but going back to your work, did it surprise you how many public officials got themselves involved, got themselves in trouble? Uh, your work in the DA and at the Watergate, were you surprised by that? And did it inform you, maybe the rest of your service, uh, about how to... I, I was not so surprised by the extent of alleged corruption and proven corruption uh, among public officials because I had studied enough American history to know that we've had wave after wave of uh, serious corruption problems among state, local, and sometimes federal public officials, practically the whole history of the country. And then interludes of a better, uh, higher uh, uh, ethical behavior uh, and then backsliding to corruption and so on right. with cycles uh, of often about 20 years duration uh, going back uh, really uh, more than a century. So I wasn't so surprised. Of course, the Watergate investigation was unusual because it was uh, uh, a focus on illegal actions by people at the very highest levels of the government, including the president. Uh, during the Watergate investigations for the special prosecutor's office, I ran an investigation of a slush fund maintained personally for President Nixon by his secretary, Rosemary Woods, and his banker friend, Charles Rebozo. So that, that level of, uh, of corruption was a little bit surprising and shocking and, and disappointing. Uh, uh, and when I then went to the so-called Church Committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee, I found there was a, a broad pattern of misdeeds among some officials high in the intelligence agencies who were investigating Americans for political uh, reasons, not investigating foreign adversaries. Uh, so uh, somewhat like Watergate, uh, uh, extensive patterns of misbehavior by by high officials, and that's part of the reason why I went from the church committee to the Justice Department. I was hired to be the deputy, the number two person in the new anti-corruption unit that they uh, called the public integrity section. It's kind of a nice uh, locution to shift from official corruption to public integrity, the goal instead of the, the problem. Uh, but I spent uh, a decade and a half investigating uh, possible misdeeds by officials high and low. Uh, and I think actually it was a, a, a worthwhile effort and highly educational and oddly uh, served me very well when I later became a judge. I read somewhere that when you were at the DOJ and uh, Senator Specter asked you to come work for him, you told him no three times before he finally accepted. And you thought you were going to go there for a brief time, but you ended up going there for seven years. Why did you initially say no, and why did you end up staying there? Well, when, when Senator uh, Specter was elected in the fall of 1980 and took office in January of 1981, he asked me to rejoin forces with him. He had been an absolutely wonderful boss who gave me uh, great support and education, was a major mentor. Uh, so I felt strongly inclined to agree to help him out. But I had a very important, interesting job in the Justice Department where I was uh, one of the associate deputy attorneys general helping to run all the law enforcement agencies within the Justice Department, including the U.S. attorneys and the FBI and the Marshal Service and so on. Uh, so I was reluctant to leave. But uh, Senator Specter, one of the most uh, brilliant and energetic and intelligent people uh, I've ever heard of or met, 
and he's very persistent. So we had uh, three conversations in which I politely declined, and in the fourth conversation, he per he persuaded me to do it. I'm very glad I did it. I did tell him uh, I wasn't going to promise to stay longer than maybe six or seven months, and I did stay seven years. It was worth the every day. It was like getting a new PhD every year in some subject we were involved in, everything from nuclear arms control to coal mine safety to currency manipulation by Japan and a thousand other issues, basically everything facing the country. So it was a great education, a great chance to serve the public, which was always my goal from grade school on. That's why I uh, avoided going into law firms and stayed in the public service. Uh, so, so there were a lot of surprises. Instead of seven months, it was uh, uh, seven years, and uh, 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 Senator Specter was as good a teacher in the second seven-year stint I served with him uh, as he had been in the first seven-year stint I served with him in, in Philadelphia. And, and, and you were telling me that part of the reason you stayed for seven years, as you and Senator Specter discussed, that might help you become a, you know, a federal judgeship at one point. Um, while I was researching for this, I, I noticed at the, at the timing that uh, Judge Borks was voted down in the Senate um, right before you were nominated by President Reagan. Uh, and obviously, you were closely associated with Senator Specter, and Senator Specter was one of the senator, six GOP senators who voted against uh, Judge Bork. Were you surprised by that? And how did how did, the, how did that all come about? Well, I uh, had no direct involvement on behalf of Senator Specter in the Bork nomination or the Bork hearings. And the reason for that was uh, simultaneously with those events unfolding, I was being vetted by the White House for a possible judgeship, uh, initially in the Third Circuit and then later on the Federal Circuit. Uh, so it was thought that I should not be part of that hearing, and I was not part of the hearing. But as you say, Senator Specter ultimately voted against Judge Bork's uh, nomination. And when he came back from the vote, he told me, well, there goes your judgeship. <laughs> he had worked hard to help me get the judgeship, uh, and he was afraid that his vote was uh, going to kill it. As things turned out, there were other considerations uh, including the fact that at the end of the Reagan administration, I might have been one of the few people who had support among Democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee as well as Republican senators. Um, and uh, so uh, uh, in December of uh, uh, 1987, a few months after the Bork vote, uh, I got a call uh, personally from President Reagan saying that he wanted to nominate me. And he asked in the most polite, uh, unusual way uh, if I would accept the job. <laughs> I assured him I would definitely accept the job if I got it. So I was nominated in December and uh, had a hearing in February, was confirmed in March, and started at the court uh, on March uh, 8th. So uh, the Bork uh, issue turned out not to be the killer of the potential judgeship after all, but it looked grim for a little while. And I told Senator Specter uh, on that walk after he came back from the vote on Bork, uh, look, don't worry about it. Uh, you have to vote your conscience. You have to vote the way you think the country needs. Uh, I see why you voted the way uh, you voted. And if the judgeship uh, goes down in flames, so be it. You know, you'll survive and I'll survive. And we both did. Great. Um, 
you were telling me that you were you became you were interested in possibly becoming a judge even before you went to college. When did your interest in intellectual issues and patent law first come about? Do you remember that? Or? Well, I should go back to about fourth grade when I read a book about Thomas Jefferson. I was so intrigued with how he used his legal training and experience in public service as an ambassador and a cabinet member, and of course, later as a two-term president. And that really intrigued me, the idea that you could use law for the public good. So I wanted to be a lawyer going back to reading that biography of Jefferson in, I think, the fourth grade. And then shortly after that, I became interested uh, in intellectual property law because my uncle, George Turner, who was with the Cravath, Swain, and Moore law firm in New York City, uh, was a leading antitrust and uh, patent lawyer, uh, often representing and counseling uh, IBM. So I had an interest in uh, being a public lawyer going way back, an interest in intellectual property. And I think by the time I graduated from high school, I had the desire in the back of my mind, if the chance ever should arise, of wanting to become a judge. So I got very lucky uh, decades later and became a judge. I loved every day of my judicial service. I initially planned to stay there until I died. But I decided to leave because somebody had to speak out to defend a strong, balanced, fair, uh, productive patent system because the country's economy, its global competitiveness, job creation, incomes for families, for governments, all depend on a strong intellectual property innovation invention ecosystem, and patents are at the heart of that. And, and I guess two more questions about your time in the Senate. One was, I, I noticed that you and uh, former Chief Judge Rader actually worked at the Senate around the same time. Did you have an opportunity to work with him in the Senate, or did you uh, meet him while while you were in the court? Uh, we did not work directly uh, together uh, during our uh, overlap time in the Senate. Uh, we almost had a debate. Uh, there was going to be a debate between Senator Hatch, for whom uh, Rader worked, and Senator Specter. And um, uh, for some reason, neither senator could uh, show up for the debate. I think it was supposed to be in Philadelphia. And at one point, there was a plan to have, uh, as substitutes for the senators, uh, uh, Judge Rader and myself, uh, in the end, the sponsors uh, got somebody more famous, I suppose. Uh, but in any event, we, we did not really have any uh, direct uh, do you remember uh, the involvement. Of the <laughs> I do not. It wasn't patent law. <laughs> I do not. Uh, but I did work with Judge Rader for many years. Uh, I joined the Federal Circuit in 1988 and Judge Rader in 1990. So we served together for... Uh, for, for many, many years. And then, of course, he succeeded me as the chief judge uh, upon my retirement until he, in turn, retired in 2014. While you were in the Senate, do you remember what was the awareness like of other senators or staff members about intellectual property and patent law issues? Uh, well, in general, there were very few uh, representatives or senators who knew much or cared much uh, about patent law or innovation. But there were some exceptions. They tended to be on the Judiciary Committee of the two bodies. Uh, and there were several people who were intensely knowledgeable and very involved. Congressman Kastenmeyer in the House uh, is a prime uh, example. Um, and, and there were a number of senators, including Senator Specter, who were very involved in uh, patents and patent enforcement and intellectual property. 
so it varied quite a lot. And the same thing at the staff level. There were several staffers who were uh, very well informed, but they were a small minority. That changed over time. There, uh, it's gradually uh, grown, the number of senators and number of staffers, and the same on the House side, who are quite knowledgeable about uh, patent policy matters. And it's probably uh, uh, continued at a very uh, high pace, uh, particularly uh, people associated with the two judiciary uh, committees. But it changed over time. And, you know, uh, patent law became recognized as more, import more and more important as the years went by to the uh, economy of the country. And therefore, the politicians paid more and more attention to it yeah. each year than the year before. And that is uh, an ongoing trend. How did the Federal Circuit evolve in the way it was run over the time you were there? Well, the first chief judge, uh, a former Air Force general and test pilot who had been the chief judge of one of the predecessor courts, a man named Howard Markey, was a very, very strong leader, a very strong personality, and he kind of ruled the uh, court with a strong hand. Um, and as the court evolved, uh, it was not possible to continue that style of leadership. So uh, I was the fifth chief judge. And by the time my turn came, because based on seniority and age and service and so forth, um, you really couldn't give orders. Uh, you couldn't uh, make a lot of decisions uh, about the basic business of the court. It had to be done by consensus. And you had to lead by example. And I worked very hard at doing that and keeping the court as unified as possible, trying to minimize dissent, trying to minimize dissension, uh, trying to speak with one voice, uh, trying to provide maximum clarity and coherence to the users of the patent system. I think we did pretty well. It's gotten harder over the years. But in my uh, time as the chief from 2004 to 2010, it was kind of a golden age of the court. Uh, we had very nice teamwork spirit, uh, great cooperation, great self-restraint, great personal uh, collegiality and cordiality among the judges. Uh, so I was very lucky when, when my uh, time as a chief judge uh, came and ended because it was uh, a court in a very healthy, good condition, stable membership, uh, very good spirit. And the judges were wonderful to work with. They were very cooperative and, and very uh, helpful to me as, uh, as the chief judge. I controlled the budget and the space and testified in Congress and so forth. But on many decisions, they were made as a full body, like an in-bank decision on an appeal case. So I wanted to discuss, obviously, the big IP issues with you. But the big elephant, I guess, in the patent community is whether Michelle Lee is or is not still the director of the USPTO. I wonder if you have any insights about what's going on in that or any guesses about why the USPTO is refusing to say that. Eli, I have no insider knowledge or authoritative uh, information at all. Uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised uh, if uh, Director Lee were uh, continued for some substantial uh, period. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, uh, by late summer or fall, a new director was named, and obviously I don't know who it uh, will turn out to be. Um, so uh, my guess is that uh, she'll be there for a while, but probably not for the four-year presidential term. Okay. And uh, actually, uh, found out that Director Lee is a former clerk of yours. Do you have any memories of her, or 
Can you tell us a little more about what she was like? Uh, well, Michelle Lee was an extremely effective law clerk. She had previously clerked for a district judge in San Francisco uh, after graduating from Stanford Law School. She's an extremely intelligent uh, person who uh, uh, graduated from MIT. If my recollection is correct, she got an A in every course she ever took in MIT. Wow. <laughs> a very smart person, very hardworking person with broad experience. Uh, she was in a general practice litigation firm for a while, then she was in a firm that focused on IP, and then she spent a long stint at Google, and then later uh, was hired to run the new patent office on the West Coast, uh, and moved from there to be the deputy director, the acting director, and then the director. A very capable, very hardworking uh, person, and I've had the privilege of being sort of an informal advisor to her off and on over the years, including in her time uh, at the PTO. And the, her predecessor, uh, Director Dave Kapos, was extremely popular within the IP community. Everybody thought he was a, doing a, an amazing job as a, as a director. Do you, do you have any insight about why he decided to leave the position? Well, I'm a major booster of David Kapos, who for sure is a superstar in the patent world. Uh, he was before uh, becoming director and, and is since his time as director. But from 19, uh, uh, pardon me, 2009 to the beginning of uh, 2013, he served in that position, I think, with great distinction. He was tasked with implementing the AIA, which was a monumental change for the patent office. I think he was a very effective uh, director. I wish he could have stayed longer. I don't really know the inside story, uh, but uh, I've been told by people who may know uh, that he was forced out uh, by certain people in the White House, uh, in part because he had defended uh, the propriety of issuing patents for software-related inventions. And of course, nowadays, everything's related to software, uh, cars and industrial machinery and uh, just about everything. Uh, so uh, he and I uh, worked together uh, during his time as the director. I was sort of an informal advisor and, and encourager uh, for him as I have been uh, for uh, Director Lee. And uh, uh, since uh, he left that position, he and I have co-authored several articles together and uh, I have appeared at a conference he organizes, uh, held at the Cravath office in New York City. So we're good friends and good allies, and in fact, we also serve together on the IPO Education Foundation board. Uh, going back, it seems that Dave Kaplan setting up for software patents is what possibly cost him his job. Obviously, subject matter eligibility is a big issue now. Um, at the time, the Supreme Court decided Alice. Uh, with regards to whether what should be patentable, you said, in my view, it created a standard that is too vague, too subjective, too unpredictable, and impossible to administer. Um, is your view any different now, or has it played out like you expected? Uh, it, it has played out like I feared, uh, that there is such uncertainty because of the vague, subjective criteria for deciding eligibility in both the electronic world and the human health science world, that investment is going elsewhere. Instead of investment money going to major R&D to 
develop new cures and new important machinery uh, and create new jobs and new prosperity, uh, the uncertainty uh, uh, stemming from the four Supreme Court cases, Bielski, Mayo, Myriad, and Alice, uh, is causing continual harm. The Federal Circuit has done the best it can at the margins, I think, uh, at best, uh, to, to limit the harm. Uh, but the regime imposed on the system by the Supreme Court uh, is very harmful and it continues to have harm and the ability of the Federal Circuit or the Patent Office to mitigate that harm is unfortunately rather limited. Therefore, I agree with uh, many people, including Director Kapos, that the Congress should step in and change the law of eligibility, essentially putting it back to where it was before these four decisions. Uh, as someone who, like you said previously, worked hard to foster consensus on the Federal Circuit, um, there's a view now that your patent is eligible or not eligible under 101 in the Federal Circuit, depending on what panel you get. Do you share that view and does it worry you? Panel dependency has always been a worry, always been a problem. I think for most of the Federal Circuit's uh, life, it was a very minor problem. I think it's become a more major problem in the last uh, five or ten years. And I think that's very uh, unfortunate. Uh, uh, but panel dependency uh, is only one manifestation of what happens when you have bad law. Uh, patent examiners have the same problem Federal Circuit judges do. So whether you get your patent or whether it's declared ineligible may depend on which examiner you get in the luck of the draw. The same thing with appeals to the board uh, from patent examinations or uh, AIA reviews, the result may depend on the panel. That's the, the central evil of having uh, undefined subjective uh, standards uh, that are decided in a vacuum and not tightly related to the prior art. So uh, I think we have a, a real mess on our hands and unless the Supreme Court wants to revisit and revise, I see no alternative uh, to trying to get Congress to fix the problem. That's not a sure bet, of course. Uh, and right now, Congress seems to have very little interest in eligibility and is still banging the drum about patent trolls and patent reform and, and uh, intervening to micromanage uh, court cases uh, involving patent infringement, which I think is a very bad idea. The judges are much better equipped than the Congress to manage the cases and and to set up the procedures for managing the cases. So I think we have a real mess on our hands uh, and it's uh, starting to bite hard on the economy, on job creation, on global competitiveness, on technological leadership and on incomes of families and governments and the whole country. So uh, in my opinion, we need a really big course correction and we need it very badly and we need it right now. There's been several proposals out there about what to do to solve the subject matter eligibility problem. Uh, IPO has recently backed a proposal. Former Director Kapos has suggested getting rid of Section 101 altogether. Uh, do you have a view, uh, an opinion about those proposals or what you think is the most feasible or the best solution? Uh, I like both this? proposals. I'd be fine with the, what Director Kapos uh, has said and I'd be fine with the carefully honed uh, IPO uh, legislative proposal. Uh, what we can't stand in this country is inaction and more drift and more 
a loss of incentive for investment in all the technologies that are so uh, greatly needed uh, in order to have a healthy economy going forward. I mean, everybody's been worried for years about slow, low, weak growth. And it, keep, it keeps going on, and it's going to get worse because public investment in R&D is going down due to the federal fiscal mess. So private investment needs to not only go up, it needs to go up doubly to make up for the loss of public investment and to keep us competitive with China and Germany and England and other countries. So we really better watch it, or the Chinese are going to... Uh, uh, dominate world economy uh, in a way that's totally unnecessary and we're going to be sending technology and jobs and uh, investment uh, overseas that should be uh, expended here. I guess from your legislative experience and, and you saying that we need action now with regards to 101, well, what do you think is a realistic timeline for Congress to act on this? What should the IP organizations be pushing for? And how do you envision it happening? Do we need another patent reform bill? Or is this a fix that can be inserted into another bill? What do you think is really the best approach that the IP organizations should take with pushing this? Through? I think the only really good bill pending in Congress is what I call the Coons Bill. The Strong Act is its other name. Senator Coons uh, himself was a patent lawyer in industry uh, and is maybe the only person in the whole Congress with extensive experience. Certainly stands out in that regard. Uh, the other bills would do more harm than good, in my opinion, including uh, the Patent Act, the Senate Comprehensive Reform Bill, and the uh, uh, House counterpart, H.R. 9. Uh, uh, we don't need more patent reform. We need revival of the patent system. Uh, the Coons bill would do that. None of the other bills would do that, in my opinion. I think getting uh, relief on eligibility will be difficult, will be an uphill fight for sure, uh, may never happen. I think there's a chance it will happen because I think that uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer that we're harming our economy by having so badly weakened the patent system through the AIA, the eligibility cases, the procedures at the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, the outcome of the so-called PTAB uh, proceedings. Uh, so I think there's a good potential for a turnaround in congressional thinking. Uh, I'd be amazed if they passed anything before 2018, and it might take longer than that, but I, uh, I think it will ultimately pass in some form because it will become clearer and clearer and clearer that we're killing the golden goose. The last major reform uh, effort, and you alluded to it several times, was the AIA Act. You were involved in that effort. Were you surprised by how overwhelmingly ended up passing Congress? And I guess in a, in a, in a broader sense, why do you think Silicon Valley companies and other interest groups have been so successful in creating this, this idea or fear over panels? Well, the proponents of the most aggressive sorts of patent reform have an enormous amount of money, are highly organized, have top-level lobby firms, public relations firms, law firms, massive campaign contribution war chests, so they have a lot of influence in the Congress. So when I was there, there was a cliche, money talks, early money shouts, <laughs> and big money screams. So. Uh, the Silicon Valley giants have spent a lot of money lobbying Congress, and they've had a lot of impact. 
there are some troll cases. There are some frivolous cases. There is a problem. I think it's clear it's a very much of a second order problem. The main problem is the weakness, the slowness, the expense, and the uncertainty of, the, of getting and enforcing patents. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, the Congress is still fixated on a greatly exaggerated troll problem and is only beginning to learn the real problem, which is weakness and uncertainty. Uh, I think they will get there, uh, and there are more and more efforts. The, the, the uh, Alphabet Soup uh, patent organizations, the AIPLA, IPO, LES, uh, uh, and the others uh, have a high degree of consensus that we need to strengthen the patent system, we need stronger remedies, we need faster, cheaper trials, we need fairer procedures uh, at the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Uh, uh, and um, eventually those views will penetrate more and more, I think, uh, on Capitol Hill. I certainly hope so. I'm certainly dedicated to doing all I can to, to uh, advocate uh, those uh, views because it's so clear to me that's uh, what's needed. So I'm hopeful there'll be some uh, chance, uh, some good chance of passing eligibility reform and reforms that will strengthen uh, the patent system by fixing the defects in the AIA reviews in the patent office rather than trying to micromanage the management of ongoing patent trials, which is the main subject of the current pending comprehensive bills I mentioned before. That we definitely do not need. What we need is to fix the patent office, fix the PTAB procedures, strengthen patent remedies, correct the Supreme Court's errant eligibility case law. Uh I guess looking back at how the AIA played out, how do you think the advocacy and strategy by those who, like you, and obviously um, with deeper pockets who understand and believe in the importance of patent rights, how does that have to change? Do they have, do they have to take a different approach than they were taking? Or is it a matter of being involved in a larger scale? I guess what has to change about that? Well, I think uh, what should happen, and I expect will happen, is more and more involvement from startups, from small companies, from new technology-dependent companies, from middle-sized companies, and from companies in diverse industries. The press likes to say it's just a battle between Google and a few other Silicon Valley giants on the one hand and Big Pharma on the other hand. That's a gross misdescription of the real lay of the land. Patents affect almost every industry and are desperately needed in uh, many uh, industries and by many companies. Look, there, there are fewer than 10 Silicon Valley giants in the United States. There are 30,000 commercial companies in America today of size, that is, that have at least 100 employees. So why should 10 uh, dominate uh, as opposed to the 29,990. It doesn't make any sense. But I think as the smaller and more diverse companies get more organized, more mobilized, uh, more vocal, uh, there'll be better balance in what the Congress hears. Uh, similar question, I guess, from the judicial perspective. The Supreme Court's, I guess, hostility towards patent rights has seemed to mirror a general uh, hostility in the pop culture and in Congress. Has that surprised you? Have you been disappointed by that? And I, I guess if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I'm very surprised uh, because my understanding of the history is that the 1952 Act innovation of non-obviousness in Section 103 
was essentially meant to overrule a century of Supreme Court patentability case law. But the Supreme Court acts as if the 52 Act was nothing but a mere codification that didn't change anything. So when they have these eligibility cases, they go back and they're quoting cases that go back to the 1800s as well as uh, the early decades of uh, the 1900s. I think that's very unfortunate. I think it's uh, unsound. Uh, uh, but that's what they're doing. Uh, and so they end up relying on dicta in ancient cases that wasn't even about eligibility. It was about what we now call obviousness. Uh, so the whole line of cases has been off on the wrong foot, and I think they've been off on the wrong foot uh, with the uh, eBay decision, uh, making injunctions very difficult, almost impossible for most patent owners to get, uh, and um, uh, turning the uh, obviousness case law on its head in KSR by making it so subjective with vague notions like common sense. So it seems to me that in all these major cases, not all the cases, they've done lots of, of helpful work in Nautilus and Teva and, and other cases. But in the cases I've mentioned, I think the Supreme Court has unintentionally caused great harm to the patent system and the innovation ecosystem it's meant to protect. And, and do you see that changing, or do the justices have to change this? Congress have to act and hope that the new law is properly applied? Or is there something that, I guess, uh, well, I, 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 I had hoped that the Supreme Court would revisit some of their cases, particularly Mayo. Uh, but they rejected the cert petition in the famous sequinome case where the Federal Circuit judges, including those most skeptical of patents, practically begged them to grant cert, and they didn't. So apparently they're not very interested, at least not right now, in revisiting any of the eligibility cases. I hope they will get uh, interested at some early date and revisit and revise them. But I'm not too hopeful, not too optimistic that it, I am hopeful, but I'm not very optimistic that it's going to happen at least not anytime soon. And that's part of the reason why I think legislation is the only rescue vehicle that's readily uh, available. And even that, as we have said, is not going to be easy. But it might be easier uh, than the Supreme Court, which seems stuck in its own decision making and its own precedents and its own ancient uh, dicta. Uh, and as far as the Patent Office is concerned, uh, the Federal Circuit has limited ability to fix the problems there, just as they have limited ability to fix the eligibility problems. Uh, but the Patent Office, by regulation, could fix almost every one of the major problems with the AIA procedures and could do a great deal more. It's done a lot, but could do a great deal more to improve the quality of patent examinations and therefore make the grant of a patent a reliable property right that people can base investment decisions on. Uh, and those decisions will be sound and the patents won't later be invalidated either for ineligibility or uh, obviousness or uh, other grounds. So a lot could be done. Uh, you know, tomorrow the PTO commissioner could re revise the IPR regs uh, on almost every point. There are only two out of nine points that the, uh, the director could not change. So I'm hoping Director Lee, as long as she's there and any successor director will make those changes. That doesn't require the Supreme Court or the Congress to act. It could be done immediately by the PTO if it exercise strong, vigilant leadership. We started this discussion by talking about how many of the themes that you sounded the alarm for 
about job growth um, are reasons for improving America's bound system. Uh, yesterday, I was listening to President Trump address to Congress, and he pointed out there's 94 million Americans out of the labor force, and one in five people in working in prime working years are not working. I guess I wanted to get your thoughts about how improving, specifically improving America's spend system, could fit into President Trump's agenda. Do you have any thoughts about that specifically? Well, as I said, there are many studies by the Census Bureau and by the Kauffman Foundation and by others that show that uh, most net new jobs are created by technology-dependent, small startup, new growing companies. So you need to protect their ability to start up and grow and prosper, and we aren't doing that. Uh, so uh, what's the biggest single problem in America today? In my opinion, it's jobs. And with the ongoing impact of automation, we need to create a huge number of new jobs. We know what the job creation machinery is. It's well documented in the literature. So why aren't we uh, ramping up that engine instead of stifling that uh, engine? Uh, so uh, whether you talk about job creation or growth or uh, revival of uh, uh, distressed cities, there are hundreds and hundreds of distressed cities all over the country. Uh, uh, either way you look at it, uh, the innovation ecosystem is uh, the heart of the solution. So I'm hopeful that the, the new Secretary of Commerce, uh, whoever is going to be running the patent office, uh, will uh, pay great attention to that and will strengthen the patent system so we can create the jobs, increase the productivity, uh, uh, speed up the, the uh, 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 growth of the economy. Uh, there's no reason it can't be much better than it's been uh, recently, uh, and it needs to be much better, uh, and we know how to do it. So why we are doing it when other countries are is a, 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 just an astonishing uh, mystery to me. But I think it's partly education, uh, and I'm a great believer that uh, the Policymakers in the Congress and the White House uh, are well-intentioned and smart and hardworking, and if they can just be more fully educated in a more balanced way, I think they'll do the right thing, and uh, it will be very productive. Great. So I, I want to ask uh, and with a few last questions to get your advice. Um, I guess one, if, I guess advice for a law student who's just starting out on their path, but maybe their dream is to be the next. Uh, Judge Michelle, what advice would you give them? Uh, well, intellectual property law is a great field to go into. It's constantly expanding. The work is extremely interesting. It's rather well paid. You'll never be bored in a 50-decade career as an IP lawyer. Uh, you get to watch the progress of business uh, in the trademark area, of creative arts in the copyright area, and of course, uh, utility inventions in the uh, patent area. Uh, so it's a, it's a great field to be in. It's totally fascinating. Uh, you can make great contributions to your clients and the whole society by being an effective uh, patent lawyer. Um, uh, I think the key uh, is uh, to specialize, not to try to do everything, uh, to develop writing skills of the highest possible order, and that takes a lot of repetition. You have to write a lot to get to be good at it. Uh, and then when you get to be good at it, you've got to work hard to get to be better at it and keep getting better, better, better. I'm 76 now, and I'm still working on my writing skills. And, and 
My, my last question, I guess, is for the IPA community as a whole. Overall, we talked today, the picture seems quite bleak for patents. It's not clear if you can even get a patent for the most related to the most innovative parts of our economy. Once you get a patent, it's not clear if those rights will survive or if they could ever be realistically relied upon. Do you have any last words of optimism of, uh, for the future? Well, I do have some optimism. Uh, one source is it will become clearer and clearer that we desperately need a stronger patent system. Uh, the realities will emerge in starker and starker form. Uh, and secondly, I think uh, one of our problems has been we operate in silos. The Supreme Court does what it does to the patent system, uncoordinated and mindless of what the other agency is doing. Congress does its own uh, involvement and not paying attention to the Supreme Court or the Patent Office. The Patent Office over in its silo does what it does without adequate uh, a focus on what the others are doing. And the same thing for the White House and the Food and Drug Administration and uh, the International Trade Commission and other actors in the IP arena. And uh, not only are they operating in isolation from one another, but they're ignoring the key thing, which is that patents need, are needed so they can incentivize investment. So who should they be talking to? Venture capitalists, equity fund managers, investment bankers, pension fund managers, all the managers of big money. That's the money that needs to go into R&D and commercialization. So the reason I'm hopeful is I think that the uh, IP groups, which also have operated in silos, will finally band together. And you'll have LES, AIPLA, ABA, IPO, Autumn, and others working together in a concerted fashion to try to save the patent system, to save the American economy in the future of this country. And if they do band together, we'll make good progress. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it, Eli. Good questions.